is Bad Boys and Beyond with your hosts, Mike Payton and Keith Black Trudeau. The game's over and the Pistons have won the world championship. With the 13th pick in the 1995 NBA draft, the Sacramento Kings select Corliss Williamson from the University of Arkansas. Welcome back to Bad Boys and Beyond. I am your host, Mike Payton. With me, as always, is my co-host, our co-host, the co-hostess with the mostest, Keith Black Trudeau. Yep, co-hostess with the mostest. He's giving me a look. You should see it right now. It's it's saying, don't ever do that again. And and maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I don't know. I'm dangerous. We'll see what I do. Uh, but we're back. We're back this week. Uh, no guests this week. You say it's just me and Keith. So you don't get to hear anything exciting this week. Um, but no, this is going to be an exciting show. We're talking about possibly one of the greatest six men of all time, Mr. Corliss Williamson. I know this was one, Keith, you really wanted to do and have been talking about for a while. Yeah, Corliss, one of the underrated Pistons, uh, really in the history of the franchise, because he was here so briefly and... Uh, there, there aren't any memories of him in the NBA Finals um, really doing much. But as far as what he accomplished, I think it's so unique. And he's such a, I think he's such a neat player, uh, despite being the antithesis of what people today think a basketball player should be at his position. Uh, not really a great defender, not really a three-point shooter, uh, not really a shot blocker, but he was still damn good. Yeah, I, I think, you know, like you mentioned um, off air, like you, you, there's a real good case for him to be maybe the Pistons best six men ever. And and we're, we'll get into that later. And and um, I have an argument I want to get into later, too. Uh, but we'll save that for for after we go through Corliss's career. Um, but before that, we want to uh, kind of touch up on some some Pistons stuff since the last time we talked when we had uh, Rod Beard on. The Pistons railed off uh, two pretty impressive wins over the Denver Nuggets and the Utah Jazz uh, and then had a, a really close game against the, the Phoenix Suns and then, you know, looked good early against Cleveland before completely falling apart. Uh, and, and they've done all of this without their best players. And I, I don't know about you, Keith, but I came away kind of energized by this because when we talked to Rod last week, we were talking about the possibility of pushing back this big 2023 off season that has been kind of talked about for a long time based on the fact that the Pistons could, were so bad, but like, I don't know when they, when their best players are leaving, I, I saw a lot of, of this team coming together and it really showed me, um, I got some hope for the future. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think I termed it on Twitter as uh, adults are in the room, and that's kind of what happened over the last uh, week. Uh, you had all these uh, young players, these first-round draft picks, from these lottery picks from Troy Weaver over the last three, three years. Uh, they're having to leave the team one by one, and it seems like every every time one of them leaves, the team improves a little bit, and that's not necessarily a slight on those players. Uh, certainly not Cade or, or Jaden Ivey or, or Sadiq Bey. It, 
the problem is no matter how talented you are in the NBA, it, it takes a certain level of maturity. It is hard to win in the NBA. It just is. And you, you, it's something you need to learn unless you're overwhelmingly talented like Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and James Harden. Everyone else needs to learn along the way. And I, 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 I want to phrase this carefully, but I think that maybe the best thing that could have happened uh, for some of these young players is to have to sit back and, and be forced to watch uh, the veterans on the team with, with the addition of Jalen Duran, who wasn't special over the last two weeks and either, uh, but, but watch the guys with experience, the guys that weren't playing when they were playing, when they were eating up all the minutes, all the possessions, watch them go out there. The guys that have been in the league, six, seven, eight years, the guys that have, that know what, a, how a playoff team is supposed to move the ball. Like all of a sudden you saw the ball snap around. You saw the, the offense actually being run smoothly for once, even with less talent on the floor, because they're mature enough to understand that the ball doesn't need to stop all the time. It, I don't have to quote unquote, I don't need to create something every single possession. You can move and you can move the ball to the next guy, find the open man, trust him to do something with it. And I'm really hoping that once those younger players start coming back, which it see, it sounds like they might be back tonight, that, uh, the, their their approach to the game is going to change a little bit because I think that's when this team is really going to start taking off, uh, be it this season or next. When when all of that young talent that the Pistons have, uh, they quote unquote start to get it, and then they start to play as a team as opposed to a group of individuals, which I think everyone would agree, especially over this last week, that that's what was going on. That's why the Pistons' record is terrible because you you, you had too many guys, too many young players that weren't trying to play as a team. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, it, I heard that Isaiah Stewart was was uh, supposed to come back tonight. I, I haven't heard about anything anyone else, but um, but I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping that uh, that that they can get Jaden Ivey back. And and geez, you know, I, I my biggest fear right now is is that Cade goes down for the season and that really stunts some growth. Um, yeah, because he still needs yeah, it. Yeah, that, you know? that would be the worst. That would be the worst case scenario. Like, like Rod said last week, if. Like especially with this new new attitude, this new approach, you would definitely hope that Cade would. I, I would really love to know if Cade picked up anything over the last couple of weeks from watching everyone else. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm hoping so too. I mean, I, I the good thing that is 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 that you know he doesn't he he doesn't seem dejected out there. He's being one hell of a teammate, and I think that uh, that says a lot. I think that you can easily point to him as someone who could be a leader once he gets back on the, on the floor. Um, I'm just hoping that that's this season because um, look, I love Pistons basketball, but the thing that got me really excited was to watch Kate and now he's not there. And then Jaden's not there. And, you know, and I don't get me wrong. I love Alec Burks, but like, I, you know, I'm not going to go out and buy his Jersey or anything. Um, yeah. But I, it, but Burks may be here longer than people realize. I hope he is. I really do. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think him and Bojan are both, both need to be here for as long as possible. Yep. Yep. I think they've been, I think they're both a tremendously positive influence on the rest of the team. Yes. Especially Bojan, um, tremendous leader. Like you saw it from day one, he just came out and started leading these young kids around and they're listening. Um, can I, all right. All right. Let me, I got to complain for a second. 
because okay. uh, I'm watching the game the other night. Uh, oh, jeez. Who was that against? Um, crap. Cleveland? Yes, against Cleveland. <clears throat> Bojan gets gets the steal late in the game. No, not against uh, not, no, no, not against Cleveland. He didn't play last game. Uh, um, what you was the game? Phoenix. Yeah, Phoenix. Thank you. Uh, he gets the steal late in the game. And he gets his ankle stuck, uh, uh, stepped on. I think it was Cam, uh, Cam who did it, um, not on purpose or anything like that. But it, it just, it really pissed me off. Uh, just as yeah. a human being, that there's a man laying on the floor, writhing in pain, and we're all just still playing a basketball game. The official does not, doesn't stop the, doesn't stop the game. Like I, I don't care that the Pistons lost. I care that 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 they just let him lay there and they and the sons just grabbed an easy point and like nobody i don't know it was just i, I don't know man maybe sports isn't the place for empathy but like I, I just there was just none of it that night and it just really upset me um and i just thought it was bad officiating and it was just bad sportsmanship and it was just it was bad all around yeah, there is a rule that if a player is in immediate danger, they the referees have to stop the game. Um, he wasn't in that instance. There was really no one around him after after his ankle got stuck on. Uh, but I, I think in that instance, the referee thought that Bojan was flopping because that would have been free throws. Uh, obviously, the referee was very, very wrong. Uh, that was a horrendous, uh, horrendous miss on his part. And yes. it, it was a really lousy way to the Pistons to lose a game that I, I thought they did a great job fighting tooth and nail to win. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I've, I've seen some games in the 80s and early 90s where the, the referees aren't supposed to stop a game, period, for an injured player. They're supposed to wait for a dead ball. So, and, and I believe me, I, I've seen a referee uh, literally pull like Scotty Pippen, who, who had been concussed by a Bill Ambeer elbow in the middle of a playoff game, I've seen a referee literally pull him by his arms off the floor rather than stop the game. Yeah. Uh, today, today is still much more improved on, on how it used to be. Yeah. Uh, I just thought that was bad. And I want to say it's not, it's not because I'm a, it's not just because it was the Pistons. Like if it was Devin Booker laying in the middle of the court, writhing in pain, I would feel the same exact way. Like um, I, I just stop it. the clock. It mean, it like, no one's going to be mad about that. I, no one is going to be maybe the the irrational fans in the crowd, but nobody on the court is going to care that you've stopped the game because of an injured player. Uh, so I, I I don't know, but uh, but that's it. That's all I've got to complain about. That's in the past. Uh, let's get into Mr. Corliss Williamson, and uh, let's go all the way back to high school with Corliss because Corliss won a big award. Uh, back in high school, he won an award uh, that guys like Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Dwight Howard, uh, Brady Dick, who we don't we don't know who that is quite yet, but we'll, apparently we will because he plays at Kansas. Ben Simmons, Bradley Beal, you name it. If if you're a great basketball player, Stephon Marbury, yeah. you, uh, Chris Weber, you've won this award. It's the uh, Gatorade National uh, Player of the Year award, and. Uh, well, not national because there's some international players yeah, that it's won it the now. World Player of the it's, Year award. It makes world, it more impressive. Yeah, it's the Gatorade World Player of the Year award, and um, and and he just kind of he went into college as kind of one of the best players in the entire country. And uh, there's some interesting comparisons there that you had between uh, Corliss and Chris Weber. Yeah, so so Corliss, uh, Arkansas kid, born and raised. 
uh, one of the dominant high school players in the country, as you just said, uh, Gatorade National High School Player of the Year in 92, uh, which was the year after year after Chris Weber. He was a year younger. Uh, McDonald's All-American, that goes without saying. Uh, steps right into Arkansas. Uh, they're very good already, and he's he makes them better. Uh, averages uh, 14 and 5 as a freshman. Uh, they make it to the tournament. They lose to North Carolina, who was sadly won the national championship that season over Michigan. So it's it's not like they were that far off to begin with. Uh, his sophomore season is really when uh, Corliss took over. Uh, Arkansas was number one pretty much end-to-end uh, that season. They were the best team in the country. They finished 31-3. and three. Uh, Corliss Williamson shot 62% from the floor, averaged over 20 points a game. Uh, they go all the way to the championship, beating in the championship game Grant Hill's uh, Duke Blue Devils in Grant Hill's final college game. Uh, co- uh, their coach Nolan Richardson had this term 40 minutes of hell, which they were a pressing trapping team and they would, they would just beat you with attrition, just run you off the floor. And Corliss was indisputably their best player. And they, they go on to win the championship. Corliss is the MVP of that entire tournament. And you would think from that point, uh, he would, he would declare for the draft. He did not. He actually came back to Arkansas for one more season uh, they weren't quite as good. They lost some players. Uh, Corliss was still very good. Uh, he scored a little less. His field goal percentage was down a little less because the team around him wasn't quite as good. But he was still good enough to lead them all the way back to the national title game where they lost to UCLA. So all three of Corliss Williamson's seasons at Arkansas, they either won the national championship or lost to the team that did. Uh, it, it is one of the underrated, uh, celebrated uh, careers for a college basketball player uh, than I can recall. And where the the parallel comes in with Chris Weber, Chris Weber, also national player of the year, the year before uh, Williamson was in high school, uh, leads Michigan to two national title games and didn't doesn't win either one, unfortunately for me, as growing up a Michigan fan. But the whole point of this is, uh, Corliss Williamson to that point, his his amateur basketball career was as decorated was actually more decorated than, than Chris Weber's. Averaged more points in college than Chris Weber. Won more games than college than Chris Weber. Won won his national championship that Chris Weber failed to do. And while Chris Weber was the undisputed number one pick in the 90, 93 draft, uh, Corliss was essentially told that you're not good enough in ninety four, and then leads Arkansas back to the title game in ninety five. Declares for the draft at that point and is drafted 13th. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Um and, and we'll and we'll get into that draft here in just a second. I just wanted to I'm looking at the the teams that have won the national championship since then. It seems like this was the last time that a a southern team, a team down south that's not Florida or like, Kentucky. Or Kentucky, yeah, I mean, ever ever got there. Like it's 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 I don't know, these teams just don't exist anymore. These like uh I, I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's hard weird. to say just because it's like, what it depends what you consider South. I mean, if you don't consider Kentucky South, I don't. Or, <laughs> Not, or, when I think of South, yeah. I think Tennessee, I think uh, Arkansas, Mississippi, okay. you know, Alabama, like the Bible belt, basically. I don't, I don't know if Kentucky would really like fit. Some people would consider Virginia South. No, 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 no. 
no, 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 no. And I think it all depends on where you live. Yeah, uh, yeah I just uh, it's it's interesting to me. Like it, it's it's almost like basketball became kind of like an East Coast thing. Um, you know, yeah, it originally was. And yeah, it, it, right. it's cyclical. Like it was East Coast, and then and then um, John Wooden goes to UCLA. All of a sudden, the the Pac the Pac ten starts becoming relevant. And yeah, it, it is kind of it's kind of cyclical how basketball goes right, in college basketball. So as you had mentioned, uh, Corliss comes out uh, in the 1995 NBA draft, and he goes all the way down to the 13th pick. Guys that are picked before him. Some some names you may remember: Cherokee Parks, uh, Gary Trent, Sean Respert, one of the best college Your basketball guy. players of all time, if you ask me. Uh, a big Country Bryant Reeves, Joe Smith, Ed O'Banion, uh, Kurt Thomas. Like I guess I can understand guys like Sean Respert, Ed O'Banion. These these were like guys who, uh, you know, I think what Ed O'Banion helped. UCLA win the national championship, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Um, and then, you know, Sean Respert was, I know he was a wooden award contender the year before, but like Corliss is a guy who just led a team to the national championship game two years in a row. Like, and, or- and, and I'm going to tell you exactly why that is. If you look at those, those players, uh, their dimensions going all the way down, Bryant Reeves, uh, seven, two, probably two ninety. Obviously, that's a center. Uh, Damon Stoudemire, 5'11". He's obviously a point guard. Sean Respert, what was he, 6'3", 6'4", pretty athletic, uh, classic two-guard. Uh, O'Bannon, uh, probably, he was probably 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, uh, small forward, uh, pretty athletic. I mean, the, these guys all have defined positions, even down to freaking Gary Trent, who was, even himself was probably like 6'9", 260. Uh, but Corliss Williamson, we get to Corliss Williamson. He goes 6'7", 245. Uh, usually that's a small forward, except that Corliss was not terribly athletic. He could run, but he could not jump uh, very well. At least for an NBA player, he couldn't jump, elevate very, very well. Uh, not As I said at the beginning of this podcast, he wasn't really a shot blocker, uh, not really a three-point shooter. And in the NBA, they ask the most important question that they ask about you coming into the draft is what position are you going to play in this league? And no one could really answer it for Corliss Williamson because in college, he was a dominant uh, post-up power forward in the NBA. You're not going to be a dominant post-up power forward at six, seven more than likely. Uh, so they will want to play you with the three, but Corliss Williamson was built like a, a, a defensive end. So he, he didn't have the, the foot speed to hang with, uh, with, most NBA wings, like is, is he going to be guarding uh, Glenn Rice off of screens? Is he going to be guarding Scotty Dippen on the ball? No, no, of course not. So despite how good he was in college, that's really when I started to hear the term tweener, uh, that, that, that late, that specific label that people use to describe a NBA draft prospect that doesn't have a defined position. Like he's part power forward, part small forward. He can't play both positions, so where do we put him? So that's why he fell in the draft because of those concerns. How how was how he going to fit in the NBA, and who is he going to be able to guard? Right. Well, once he gets to the NBA, he kind of starts off a little slow, and you had mentioned that it seemed like everybody ahead of him was just yeah. much bigger than him. Yeah, the uh, the 96 Kings were actually a pretty decent team. They made the playoffs, but 
if you look at the roster, you almost wonder why the hell they drafted him to begin with, because they had so many guys that essentially played his position already, uh, both at the three and the four and the big forward. Uh, Brian Grant, who was their lottery pick <laughs> the year before, uh, they had Billy Owens, they had uh, uh, Lionel Simmons, your favorite. Uh, they they had so many forwards on that team that were already getting minutes, and he he's yeah he struggles just to get on the court. It's not really his fault. He just they they it was a massive logjam up front, and. As I said before, the Kings were actually a pretty good team, so they weren't in a in a rebuilding mode. They were trying to make the playoffs, which they did, and they make the playoffs. And Corliss Williamson plays a total of two minutes after averaging five points. It's not because he was bad. I don't think it's just because they couldn't find time for him. Right. Well, they they do start to find time with him uh, for the, in his next season in nineteen ninety seven, but uh, nineteen ninety eight. If if we're skipping ahead a little bit, is where. Corliss really starts to find his career. Like he, he, he comes out, he, uh, he uh, starts 75 games this season. He scores 17 points a game. Uh, looks like, you know, one of the league's uh, hot young players um, sort of dips down after that, but, but you could see that he's definitely a big time contributor. And uh, you know, you think uh, that because that team changed so much, is that probably why he, you know, started to get right, a lot well, more? Yeah. So, what happens after 1997 is Brian Grant leaves as a free agent. They no longer have him. So they're all of a sudden that, that starting power forward spot opens up and yeah, Corliss Williamson steps right in, has the highest scoring season of his career. Maybe not the best, I don't think, but he gets plenty of minutes, plenty of touches and he produces nearly 18 points a game uh, in his third season. Like he he shows every bit his uh, skill level that he did in college. He's just doing it in the NBA, and I think that surprised some people. Uh, he nearly won the most improved player award that season. Uh, shot just under fifty percent. And if I were to describe Corliss's game to to somebody, uh, we we've I at least I've spoken uh, at length already about what he couldn't do. Well, this is what he could do. Uh, he was a big physical. Uh, wide body, uh, 6'7", uh, 245, 250. Uh, yeah, he had trouble playing defense, but uh, there was many guys in the NBA that could guard him either. He was too quick for traditional power forwards, could take them off the dribble, could shoot over the top of them out to 15, 16 feet. And if if you if you caught him on a small forward, uh, a guy that was you know, 6'6", 215 pounds, uh, it, it would just be a barbecue chicken he would eat them alive in the post it what, what if Corliss Williamson and this goes for his entire career whenever he got a favorable matchup like a guy that he could really abuse uh he he would just mercilessly just destroy them until you took him took that player off the court or sent a double team his way he was that good at putting the ball in the basket and so yeah how the rest of his his king's career uh goes uh, there was a massive change in the in that summer of '98. The, the Kings trade their franchise player Mitch Richmond for a a better one in Chris Webber, and they draft. Uh, they take a chance in the draft on a a guy that's had some problems, uh, Jason White Chocolate Williams, and everything comes up roses for the Kings for the next two years. They transform from a bad team to a pretty good team. And Corliss Williamson just moves from the four to the three. He still starts. He's still actually very effective. He's a big part of that team. Uh, but the problem is 
uh, they they don't get out of the. I think the Kings got tired of not getting out of the first round those first couple of years, and they figured we need more defense. Uh, we have enough offense already, so I think their their first decision they they made other moves later, but their first big move was to move uh, Corliss Williamson to Toronto uh, for a guy named Doug Christie, who was, you know, <laughs> he is like one of the, like the Kings uh, signature Sacramento Kings players to this day. I think he does commentary for them now, but that it had nothing to do with, I think Corliss's um, ability or lack thereof. I think they just wanted to go in a different direction, get more of a defensive guy in there. Well, he heads over to Toronto, and he's 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 not there long before he gets traded to the Pistons for uh, Jerome Williams and uh, Eric Montross. I, you know, Jerome Williams is interesting because I almost feel like Corliss Williamson is what the Pistons wanted Jerome Williams to be, but Jerome just never became that. Well, because I, I remember a lot of Dennis Rodman comparisons when the Pistons drafted uh, Jerome Williams. I don't know if. I think they wanted him to be like that great six man that Rodman was or great reserve. I should say that Dennis Rodman was that spark plug guy. And he kind of was to an extent, but he was never, he was almost good enough in so many areas, but never quite good enough. I, I, I think with Williamson, they got a very different player. Uh, they didn't get that defensive energy guy that maybe Jerome Williams does, but man, uh, they definitely cut the better player. I, I will say that uh, it, it is. And I want to, make this point real quick. It's not like Corliss was even bad at Toronto. He was never bad anywhere at any of his stops in his career. Uh, like there was never really a major dip with him. He was always very productive. And in Toronto, the problem was uh, the coach there was, you know, the hall of famer, Lenny Wilkins and Lenny wants his system with his, you know, three tall post players up front, you know, the shot blockers and then the two sharp shooting guards in the backcourt. And, he, Corliss obviously didn't fit that system and that for most accounts, Lenny was the the guy that drove the, the push to get Jerome Williams in there because that was more of a, of a traditional, okay, this guy can play defense and rebound for me. That That's more my kind of, but again, this is the, the same coach that wanted Lenny or that wanted Dominique Wilkins out of Atlanta and got that. So in, in, on the list of, uh, on the list of grievances I have against Lenny Wilkins, Corliss isn't even in the, like the top two. Uh, but yeah, um, yeah, for, Corliss actually gets traded to the Pistons during the last half of their final teal season, uh, which a lot of, most people don't remember that Corliss actually wore the teal for for a few months. Uh, very productive immediately, uh, fifteen points a game, playing roughly uh, reserve minutes, and. He wasn't just a throw-in. He wasn't just, you know, something so they would get something for Jerome Williams, who was an impending free agent. No, he he was a, a player, and I think Joe Dumars was convinced uh, very quickly that this could be one of my foundation pieces. How how does uh, how does Corliss acclimate early uh, in that 2001 and uh, 2002 season? You know, how does he I, – I know he wins the Sixth Man of the Year award in 2002, but, but – but what is what does Corliss bring to the team that uh, that that really gets him going? Okay, so uh, Joe Dumars completely remakes his his roster between his first two seasons as GM between 01 and 02. Uh, he brings in Ben Wallace uh, in the Grand Hill trade. He brings in Rick Carlisle the second year as a head coach, and then he also tra- makes trades. He brings in um, 
Well, he brings in Corliss, but he also brings in Cliff Robinson, you know, for, for next to nothing, all due respect to Jeff Bushler. And what he winds up with is a, is a great Rick Carlisle roster is a team of high IQ veterans, uh, very good outside shooters. Uh, he brings in Dana Barrels. That's another guy. Uh, Chucky Atkins. Uh, just this wonderful collection of veteran cast offs that, that fit perfectly. And how Corliss fit uh, was essentially as instant offense. Uh, he did not start for that team. He didn't have to. Uh, his, his role, Jerry, Jerry Stackhouse was the isolation player in the starting five. They didn't need a second one, believe me. Jerry, Jerry could eat up as many possessions you know, as, as possible. Uh, but that team was so it, it very up front. It very much lacked a consistent high efficiency score because you had, you know, Jerry Stackhouse, who was an erratic sh uh, shooter. And you had you guys like Clip Robinson, uh, Chucky Atkins, Michael Curry, you know, all guys that could shoot from the outside. But that's really what they could do. They didn't get a whole they didn't draw fouls a lot. They didn't get inside baskets. They weren't guys that you could count on consistently uh, to have high scoring nights. Corliss Williamson was that guy. He was that guy uh, that entire season. Uh, for, for emphasis, uh, Corliss Williamson, 23 games in that 0-1-0-2 season, 23 games, he had at least 17 points. And the efficiency was incredible. Uh, 22 of those 23 games, he shot over 50%. Uh, 16 of those games, he shot over 60%. Uh, he was quite literally an unstoppable force as soon as he checked into a game, everyone knew they were going to start feeding the ball to Corliss. And what helped him is they had Jelko Orbracha on the other block, who was, we'll do a whole episode on him later, I promise. Uh, one of my, my favorite backup center in Pistons history, but he was also a high efficiency, low post player. And you had John Barry uh, sitting on the outside. If anyone double team Corliss, they kick it out to him. He did a three pointer. So it, it was this great bench unit uh, that the John Barry himself called the alternators. And Corliss Williamson was the, he was the linchpin of that group. And they would dump the ball into him, find, get him isolated. The spacing would be flawless. Get him isolated on any bun on the other, whoever the, their backup three, backup four was, and he would just eat them alive. It was just, I absolutely love that team, but I think, uh, <laughs> The guy I loved watching most on that team, most people would say John Barry or Ben Wallace. I think it was Corliss Williamson, uh, just because of the, the, this, the singular efficiency that he scored with. He, he, there was just no one that could guard him that whole season. Well, you know, uh, unfortunately, John Barry doesn't make it to the championship season, but Corliss Williamson does. Uh you know what was how, what role did Corliss play in winning that uh, that championship in two thousand four? Oh, all right. So if I, if I could get into one thing real quick before we is it John started. is it John yeah. Barry related? I wish it was because I could talk about John Barry a lot too. Oh, I'm I sure there's going to be a John Barry episode someday. Oh so, yes, there absolutely will be, but not right. not today. Um, I I I don't want to skip over this because I think this is Corliss Williamson's single um, greatest moment as an NBA player. Uh, the, the Pistons do make it to the playoffs that season, defying that – was, that was probably the most any Pistons team has ever overachieved ever in the history of the franchise. They were picked to finish uh, second to dead last in the East. They wound up winning the division, being the number two seed, 50, game, 50 wins. And they meet the Raptors in the playoffs, and it goes to, to, goes to a fifth game, and 
who 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 was guarding Corliss Williamson for that series? But Jerome Junkyard Dog Williams, the guy that that Toronto traded uh, Corliss Williamson to get, and Corliss Williamson, I don't know if it was he took it personally or not, but he just ripped into to Jerome Williams in that game five, just absolutely brutalized him in the second half. Uh, scores a game high twenty three points in in the series clinching game five. They only went to five games in the first round back then. Uh, most of those baskets are on uh, Jerome Williams, and that was kind of his crowning achievement uh, as an NBA player, as an individual, was in a playoff series. In the, in the deciding game of a playoff series, Corliss Williamson was the best player on the floor. He was the guy the Pistons went to in the clutch, uh, not necessarily Jerry Stackhouse, all due respect to Jerry. But that was, that was I thought, it was a great moment. I was so happy for him in, in that moment because – he had been passed over and overlooked and didn't matter how efficient he was as a scorer. People always just kept saying this guy isn't good. Enough. He, he's, he doesn't fit the archetype of what we think a, an NBA player should be. And all he did, all he did his whole career was succeed. So in, um, and here, here's where we get into the 03, 04 season. And again, I'm going to, preface this with something else because in the second i've, I've got one thing to look at real okay. quick though uh i okay, this may be related to that that series against toronto yep. well that, that, that is yeah all right well that's more of a visual thing but apparently he says uh Wolf, 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 motherfucker! As he's running off the court, and you could see him yeah. mouth it. Um, but yeah, I did. I thought, I thought maybe you'd be able to hear it. But hey, that's on me. Uh, you go ahead and and uh, carry on there. Okay, so uh, Corliss's second full season with the Pistons, o two o three. You can see Corliss. His career is kind of peaked in that o two season, and you can see the a very slight. Um, downhill slide where the, the Joe Dumars the, the, after watching them get annihilated by the Celtics in the second round not they're not able to score they don't have enough shot creators and Joe Dumars decides to solve the problem he brings he trades Jerry Stackhouse to Washington for Richard Hamilton and he brings in Chauncey Billups as a free agent and that is a lot more firepower than they had the year before and he also brings in um uh, Mehmet Okor uh, as a draft pick. So now you have yet another guy off the bench that can shoot and post and do all those other things that you want. And ideally you want your, your backup big to do. And what happens is Corliss actually plays more that season, but he shoots less. He shoots less. Uh, he doesn't get as many ISOs. His efficiency's down a little bit. And he still actually finishes you know, in the top five, I think, in six-man voting that year. Uh, it's not that he's bad at all. It's just his role diminishes a little bit. And where you really see um, it crashing down is the, the first round the Pistons play the Orlando Magic. And the Orlando Magic small forward is a guy named Tracy McGrady, uh, one of the most dominant offensive small forwards of all time, hyper-athletic player. And the problem is uh, Orlando does not sub him out, really. He averages 44 minutes a game in that series. So instead of being matched up against the other team's backup big man, Corliss is checking in, and he's being matched up with Tracy McGrady. And Tracy McGrady is just abusing him. 
And even when they send double team help, it's just breaking the Pistons defense down. So despite being their sixth man during that season, uh, Corliss does not play in game five of that series, does not play in game seven of that series. And the, the Pistons come back to win that series, but that's the problem. They, they were down 3-1. They win games five, six, and seven. And, and Corliss is basically out of the rotation for all three of those games. And he, he does have one um, redeeming moment. Uh, he scores 17 points in the next round in Philadelphia in, ga in game six to help them clinch that series, move on to the conference finals. But I, I, I think at that point, you, you, it was fair to wonder um, if, he if he could be a premier six man on a championship team. We already proven he could be one on a good team, a very good team. But now the, the stakes were being raised. And enter 0304. Uh, Rick Carlisle is now fired. He's gone. Uh, so the Pistons could bring in a Hall of Fame coach uh, in Larry Brown. Well, another Hall of Fame coach. Rick is going to be there eventually. But um, uh, Larry Brown, more of a traditionalist, uh, loves defense first, uh, very aggressive uh, approach to the game defensively. He, he, he likes tall lineups. He likes intimidating lineups. Uh, he likes athletic lineups. And Corliss Williamson is none of those things. So... Uh, he actually took Corliss Williamson really away from that small forward position that had worked for him so well uh, under Rick Carlisle and really placed him at the four and the five. And Corliss better defensively there, um, not nearly as good offensively. Uh, he he didn't get those ISOs that he that he was used to getting even the year before. So his his minute he he was still in the rotation. He was still in Larry's rotation, but his minutes were down. His shots were down. Uh, famously, that team trades for Rasheed Wallace, adds even more front court depth, uh, pushes Corliss a little bit more out of the rotation. Uh, in the playoffs, uh, they make a championship run, but Corliss only scores double figures in three of those games. None of he doesn't score double figures in any game after the second round. And I, I think what people remember most about Corliss uh, in that NBA Finals uh, defeat uh, over the Lakers is that he was guarding Shaq. Like, that was the most craziest thing. Uh, I think those first two couple of games when Rasheed got in foul trouble and Ben had to sit, uh, take a rest. You And you had Corliss Williamson playing spot minutes guarding Shaquille O'Neal. And you know what? He was actually pretty decent at it. Where he had really, really good technique, even though he was giving up half a foot, probably 50 pounds to Shaq. He got, his center of gravity was so low that he was able to push Shaq off of his spot, even though Shaq basically when Shaq turned around, he couldn't even see Corliss. Corliss was so low. So he, he could shoot, um, you know, with impunity, but Corliss had done a good, such a good job of pushing him away from the basket. It still made it a different, difficult shot for Shaq. It, like it was kind of funny, but it was also like Corliss Williamson was one of the guys that started this, this Pistons renaissance and you, you really wanted better for him in, in like the crowning achievement of that, of that rebuild. And he, he didn't really get it, even though the Pistons won the championship uh, other than torching Luke Walton a few times and playing him off the floor. We really didn't get that like signature Corliss Mo, uh, Williamson moment uh, in the finals that I would have liked to see. Well, Hey, a championship is a championship. And Corliss has won a lot of championships. He's he's yeah. won the he's won in the NBA. He won in college. He won in high school. Like some players are just 
they just get it. They just win. They just, you know, and I think Corliss is easily one of those guys that just, you know, he can look back on his basketball career and just say, Hey, I won at every single level. And, and, uh, man, uh, there's a lot of players in the, in the league that today and, and yesteryear who can say they never won state. They never won a national championship. They never won the NBA title. Uh, it's just, uh, it, it's rough to see some of that for some of those guys, but man, Corliss was not one of them. Yeah. And that's the thing for, for a guy that everyone keeps telling, uh, you, you, you don't fit, you know, what we believe a basketball player should be. I'm he, he sure won a lot at every level, amateur, uh, high level amateur in college. And then in the NBA, I mean, granted he was probably the eighth or ninth man on that Pistons team, but he was still a, a part of their team. I mean, I, I I take some satisfaction from the fact that Corliss Williamson still managed to win an NBA championship. I, I think he deserved it. And it, it it's hard to say that in the context of like, who okay, well, what NBA player doesn't deserve it, right? But I, I think from the, the amount of criticism that he got earlier in his career, you know, people calling him a bust, a bad draft pick, even though he was still a really productive player. I, I was glad. I, I was glad that he had that that type of moment, especially, you know, what happened afterwards. That was really his only shot. You know, I, not to go off on too much of a tangent here, but like, I think a lot of NBA fans, not just Pistons fans, but just, and it's not necessarily just the NBA; it's the NFL too. But really, in the NBA, they look at the draft and they think, well, okay, this is. You know, you're going to, if you don't draft somebody in the top five, you're pretty much screwed. Uh, But if you can go down to like a 13th pick and you can get a guy like Corliss and Williams or Corliss Williamson, who is going to be a great off the bench player, great part of a team, like that's, that's what you want out of the draft. If you can't get a superstar, you want a guy who can be a part of a great team and who can contribute a lot. I mean, I, I know like, you'll probably disagree with me, but like, I thought Luke Kennard, despite where he was drafted at was like, I looked at it. Okay. This guy's not going to be a superstar, but he could be a fine part of a team. Like he could be a good part of the team and he's a good part of that Clippers team. And I think Killian Hayes is now kind of showing that, that same sort of thing too. So I think people just need to get past the idea that like every draft is only for getting superstars. You, you, you're trying to build a team. And if you can score a guy like this in the 13th pick, I mean, that's a score. Why would anyone ever call him a bust? Well, yeah, Luke Kennard was a 12th pick in his own draft. I, his crime was being selected ahead of uh, Donovan Mitchell, right? It, right. If he's selected ahead of somebody that is averaging five points a game now, nobody cares. Uh, and this is my personal beef with, with fans as, as they approach the draft. We, we need to stop expecting perfection. Um, if your team does not get the absolute best player on the board where they pick, and that this even applies to Kate Cunningham, uh, stop being uh, like, stop looking at who everyone else got. Like Luke Kennard did not need, uh, does not need Donovan Mitchell to fail for Luke Kennard to be a good player. It's, it's a ridiculous correlation. They don't have nothing to do with each other. Um, the Utah Jazz obviously made a great deal in, in moving up to get Donovan Mitchell. Uh, 
that has nothing to do with the Pistons and Luke Kennard. You could say, oh man, the Pistons would have been way better if they had just drafted Donovan Mitchell, and that would that would be true. But like, leave Luke Kennard out of it. Luke Kennard is a good NBA player. He's making twenty million dollars a year for a reason. Right. He was the top three point shooter in the league last year. Uh, is he a superstar? No, but stop comparing him to other superstars just because one was picked after him. Like uh, Nikola Jokic, uh, where was he drafted in the second round? Like, right. does that make every single first round pick that season a bust because he was better than all of them? Like, it's I I, I really hate that line of thinking. Uh, you shouldn't need to root for other draft picks to fail for to feel better about your own. Agreed. Agreed. Well, uh, you know, that's it, unfortunately Corliss Williamson is not long for this world with the Pistons. Yeah. After they win the championship in 04, he's traded to the Philadelphia 76ers um, in in really a deal that was meant to just free up some money so the uh, Pistons could get Antonio McDice. Uh, looking and back it on it, it. I'm sorry. It, it wasn't even, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't even about cap room because the Pistons already capped out because of Rasheed Wallace's cap hold, uh, kept them over. Like they could, they had to, by rule, they, they essentially had to let Mehmet Okur go because they didn't have his full bird rights and they, they weren't allowed to match. Like, even if they wanted to, they weren't allowed to match that, uh, the salary offer sheet that Utah offered him. So this wasn't even a move to to like create enough cap room to get Antonio McDice under. No, that's that's not what it was. They they used the mid level on Antonio McDice, the mid level exemption. Uh, this was about luxury tax room and about saving um, Bill Davidson, you know, dollars. That's essential because the Pistons went a smidge, just a little bit. Only time in history where they've gone over the luxury tax was when they won the O four championship, and. It, it was essentially made clear that that was not going to happen again. They were not going to miss another luxury tax uh, check. So in, instead of holding on to Corliss, which they easily could have, uh, to save essentially a million dollars, and like I think there was 11, like around 12 million extra that Corliss was owed on his contract that Coleman wasn't. But for that season, that like $1 million or so, just to get them under the luxury tax, to, to allow them to give McDice the full mid-level. Like that, that was essentially the, what they traded Corliss for. I mean, this isn't as much of a travesty as I'm making this out to be because under, I, I just made it clear. Larry Brown was not a huge fan of Corliss anyway. Um, he wasn't going to have a major role going forward. So I don't think this was, this prevented him from bigger and better things in Detroit. Uh, but considering that I think what cost them the championship the next several years was their lack of depth. Um, I think it hurt the Pistons more than it hurt Corliss. Yeah, that's, that's fair. I mean, you know, uh, it did get, it did help bring in Dice and who was uh, yeah. Dice. Dice was a beloved, a uh, beloved player here in Detroit. Oh, I love, yeah. Uh, I, I can't blame Bill Davison a whole, a whole lot um, because he's not only is he spending a ton of money on a NBA championship team. He's also spending a ton of money on a Stanley cup winning team. In yeah. the Tampa Bay Lightning, like I, I could see how he could be stretched in at that moment. Yeah, I look. You're right, but at the same time, uh, in the NBA team championship team today, uh, they win a championship and they go over the luxury tax. Like people expect you to do that. If you're that good to win a championship, you know you're, you're expected to go over the luxury tax, and the Pistons weren't even over by that much. So I get it. It's a business at the end of the day. And Bill Davidson had every right uh, 
to say, I'm not missing out on another luxury tax check. Uh, it's his team. He can say he can he can say what he wants. He can manage the team how he wants. I, I just think you know today if that happened, there would be a whole lot more scrutiny. Uh, because, like, look, what fans don't want to hear that you know the billionaire owner you know wants an extra luxury tax check. They they don't want to hear that. Like right. the media doesn't even want to hear that anymore. Well, uh, as we mentioned, Corliss gets traded to Philly. Uh, he plays out um, a, a, a kind of a short season there. Injuries start to crop up. He uh, he gets sent back to the Kings, where he will eventually finish his career. For, for Chris Webber, mind you, it for all Chris comes Weber. around. It all comes back to Chris Webber, yes. He eventually gets traded for a, a, a uh, injury-plagued uh, uh, version of Chris Webber. Yes, and, uh, and another de- another desperate move by the Philadelphia 76ers of that era. Uh, just trying, just trying so hard to make something work there. Uh, but yeah, uh, Corliss, you know, ends his career in Sacramento, I guess probably where he should have. Um, I don't know if they've retired his jersey or not, but I would, I would no, speculate. No, and I can't imagine they would. I, I don't know how many jerseys they have retired. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing they've retired Chris's, but... Yeah, maybe uh, Wayman Tisdale and yeah. Uh, I, Sacramento at least is a little better team uh, than the than the Sixers were. So he finishes his career out with a couple of playoff runs, uh, but unfortunately he doesn't play very much. Um, only averages eight minutes a game in in the 05 playoffs, and only averages uh, four minutes a game in the 06 playoffs. Uh, plays one more season, gets hurt, and then as you said, he he retires. Uh, according to wow, the have more retired jerseys than I thought. Yeah, t- oh, yeah, I, yeah, tiny. yeah, the Kansas City days with t- yeah, Tiny Archibald, yeah. Mitch Richmond, very deserved. Uh, Bill Russell, who's retired by everybody, Bob Davies, Maurice. Yeah, Stokes. people forget the, yeah, the um side note, the the Kings as a franchise are the the oldest uh professional basketball franchise ever in existence. Uh, they are they are getting close to a uh, hundred years old. That's how old they are. Uh, care to guess who the second oldest professional basketball franchise is in existence? Uh, I believe it would be the Detroit Pistons, if I'm not mistaken. Or is well, the, it... the Pistons in general, but yes, uh, they're significantly younger than the Kings. But yes, they if if you count their years as a uh, amateur uh, semi pro team working out of a factory in Fort Wayne. Uh, going back to the late 1930s, they are the second oldest uh, running uh, professional basketball franchise competitively. I'm not counting the Globetrotters, all due respect to them. Would it be the New York Knickerbockers? Or the Boston Celtics? No, the, the answer was the Pistons. Oh, the answer was the Pistons. Okay, all right. Perfect, yeah. perfect, perfect. Um, okay, uh, so now we get to the, to the fun part of everything. Um, first, we go with uh, what do you think Corliss's legacy is? All right, so Corliss, and this is easy to me for me because his legacy, at least to me, even though he played more years in Sacramento, I think his legacy is most closely tied to the Pistons because that's where he showed the best version of himself. And and I want to make this clear. I think Vinnie Johnson, and we did the Vinnie Johnson episode already, and I we 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 noted that he never actually won the Six Man of the Year award. Uh, Corliss did. And it was very deserved. But 
you know, Vinny was here in Detroit for a decade plus. So it, it's, I think it's disrespectful to say that Corliss is the greatest Pistons six man ever when he was here for what? Uh, three and a half seasons. Like, yeah, basically four. Yeah. So, but however, for one season, for a one single season, uh, Corliss was not only the greatest Pistons six man ever, he was one of the greatest six men of all time. And if you look at his 02 uh, season where he won six man of the year, you say, okay, he averaged what, 13 points a game. Okay, what's the big deal there? Um, reserves do that all the time. It, it's what he did in those minutes and those limited possessions because that was a very slow-paced era of the NBA, and the Pistons were a very slow-paced team. Uh, if you look what Corliss Williamson did uh, per 100 possessions, uh, it is mind-boggling. He averaged over 33 points per 100 possessions. And Vinnie Johnson, the best season of his career off the bench, uh, he averaged 27 points per 100 possessions. Uh, McDice, uh, we've already gone over him, how good he was as a Piston. Uh, 23 points was his career best per 100 possessions. Uh, Jamal Crawford, who is is often seen as God's gift to six men, his career best was 31 points per 100 possessions. And G Manu Ginobili, uh, the Hall of Famer, uh, most noted for coming off the bench uh, for the Spurs, uh, his career best uh, was only half a point better than Corliss's. That That is the rarefied Hall of Fame era that Corliss Williamson was for that one season. He was so good, so efficient uh, as a scorer, not just his ability to get uh, good shots around the rim, but his ability to draw fouls, uh, his ability to create havoc um, when the Pistons needed it the most. I would argue for that team, uh, he was the MVP of that 2002 team. And I'm going to get arrows. So I can feel them already. They're coming at me. What about Jerry Stackhouse? What about Ben Wallace? Uh, Corliss Williamson with the game on the line was the guy that the Pistons wanted to have the ball. That, that, that was, that's, I'm sorry, that's just the, the fact. And, and I love Ben Wallace and just amazing player. And this is not a slate to him. But I think if you take any of those three off of that 0-2 Pistons team, I, I, I think the Pistons would have won fewer games with Corliss, without Corliss, than they would have without Ben or without Jerry Stackhouse. And that I know that's that's sacrilege to me to say because the other two players are are better. But for that one season, uh, Corliss was just amazing, and I, I think how good he was is kind of uh, shadowed uh, by by just his raw counting stats, which I don't think accurately reflect. Uh, how how dominant a player he was during that regular season, and that 0102 Pistons team that was the springboard. That that was the season when when fans thought that the Pistons would be in a five year rebuild. Um, in in year two, <laughs> they went fifty games, and and Corliss I, I think was the the biggest uh, factor in them overachieving and then pushing the pushing the clock ahead or pu pushing the clock back. Like this rebuild is ahead of schedule and you, you can trace a lot of that, that enthusiasm of that momentum that they took into that 04 season to that 02 season. And I think that Corliss Williamson played the biggest part in their success in that 02 season. All right. Now here's where I come in with my little argument here that I mentioned okay. I was going to have early. Uh, I totally agree with everything you're saying. Um, okay. So I was watching the rock and roll hall of fame the other day. Uh, and, you know, it occurred to me that 
the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is kind of like the only Hall of Fame out there that is having that that's inclusive. It's not just rock and roll. It's country. It's rap. It's reggae. It's it's you know it's uh it's essentially anything that's moved music in a positive light. Uh, it it will get okay. you a chance to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Why can't we do something like that with the Basketball Hall of Fame? Why can't there be a six man wing, like? full of guys who they were never superstars but they were guys that were like championship winning caliber players bruce bowens the the vinnie johnsons of the world the corliss williamsons of the world uh, i really feel like there needs to be something like that and if there was i think corliss would be one of the like top guys in there all right i'll say this um there either is to an extent there's a contributors winning like uh Danny Biasoni, who um, I think that's his pronunciation, uh, the man who invented the shot clock, uh, he's in there as a as a contributor. But the it, the problem is with the contributor, it's people who contributed to rules, regulations, uh, people who influenced uh, the game to move in one way or the other. I don't know if there are any players in there, and I think it, they they should expand that wing. Uh, I don't know if Corliss would be a great example for that, but. Like Robert Ory, who a guy who yeah. talent wise does not belong anywhere near the Hall of Fame, but he contributed in such a singular fashion. Uh, Mosey Bogues would be another one. Uh, Corliss, I, I, I think we could, it, it would kind of be like the island of misfit toys almost. Uh, a, a wing for for players who, for whatever reason, uh, did not look the part of of, it, of being a successful professional basketball player, but were nonetheless. I think there would be a, a, I think it would be really, really nice if there were a contributor's wing for for players that defied um, expectation or defied archetype, players that changed the game in that way. Not that Corliss changed the game necessarily, but he he proved that you could do it um, as a quote unquote tweener player uh, that that wasn't the traditionally uh, sized player that the NBA loves to see. Sure. Well, I mean that kind of. I guess that kind of brings up another point. Robert Ory would really be in for this, but like a player that created a moment, created moments, many moments. Um, you know, something like that. Uh, I think that you know, Mate Corliss wouldn't be a part of that because yeah. he never really created any big shockwave moments. But like guys like oh, yeah. Robert Ory, or even Muggsy Bogues, you know, who that he. I wouldn't say he necessarily created like a moment. But he like was like he's iconic. He's everyone knows who Muggsy Bogues is. Even he's a, he, he was in the Hootie and the Blowfish music video. What right. he wasn't iconic. Uh, no, he was iconic. He's definitely iconic. He was in Space Jam. Like everybody knows who this guy is. He's a five yeah. foot three basketball player who like was good. Um, or Spud Webb, who like you know that that dunk yep. contest. That, that would was be a, another guy. That yeah. was a big deal. Um, but you know that's I guess that's something you know that. That's not up to us, but I will say thank God for the guy who created the NBA shot clock, because if you've ever watched a game with no shot clock, sweet Jesus, is it boring? Yeah, the, the, the Detroit Pistons were the reason, the main main uh, reason that it was invented. Well, not the Detroit Pistons, it was, they were in Fort Wayne back then, but uh, yeah, quick, quick sidebar, if anyone doesn't know this story, the, the, the Minneapolis Lakers with George Mikan were the, the dominant team of the NBA's early uh, decade. And the, the coach of Fort Wayne, 
uh, did the practical thing and just said, okay, well, we have no, there's nothing forcing us to shoot. You have this big lumbering team. So we're just going to hold the ball for 48 minutes. And, and it worked. The, the unfortunate thing is it worked. The Pistons beat the Lakers that night, 19 to 18, uh, to a chorus of either fans booing or just walking out because they, no one was taking shots. So that's, um, yeah, that, that, that was the biggest um, precursor to the, the, the invention of the shot clock because the NBA would have died a horrible, horrible death uh, by the end of the 1950s if it hadn't been for Danny Bison. Hey, 48 minutes of time of possession. You get something like that in Detroit. I think fans are wide of being happy. Lions fans would love that much, that much time of possession. But uh, just to get back to Corliss on our last question today, and I think this is an easy yes. Can he play today? Yeah, so you ask me this every single time, and I'm pretty sure my answer every single time has been yes. Um, today I'm going to say no. Whoa, uh, okay. Well, no, here's really? Not necessarily that he couldn't uh, play today, but I don't think he would be allowed to play today. Uh, even going back to the mid-90s, when the post game was still a very dominant uh, facet of NBA basketball, uh he, he was still, people were still questioning, you know, if he had a role in, at the highest level. Today, I don't even think it's close. Uh, today, uh, I, I I think he might be a second-round pick, and maybe he would be fortunate because everyone, and this, this is my problem with the modern game, uh, not that I hate the modern game or anything, but this, this is one of the things that annoy me the most about it is the, the post game is taken for granted. People want big men today to be to be able to do one of two things: shoot the three pointer, or block shots and and be active around the rim and catch lob dunks. They don't want big men to create their own thing. They don't want big men to to post up. All they see that is someone that clogs the lane for the other four guys. And Corliss Williamson was very much that type of player uh, where he wanted to get to the rim. He wanted to get to the post. Uh, he was not a his range. Uh, died after 16 feet uh, good inside 16 outside of he wouldn't even shoot the ball so I, I i think today it would be very difficult to find a role for him on an nba floor which is sad because i think he would he would just eat against a lot of these small ball lineups that wouldn't be able to guard him like it the only guys that could guard him in his day were the guys that were oversized you know the big six nine six ten two fifty uh, jumbo power forwards that, that could at least be physical with him, even though he had a quickness advantage. Today, those guys don't really exist. He would just eat up. Even the seven-footers today are like 220 pounds, the, the guys that play on the perimeter. So he, 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 would, he would be able to eat up a lot of those guys. I, I just don't know if he would ever get that opportunity. It's I, I know I make this, this comp a little bit too much, but like, I don't know. He's kind of like a Draymond Green. Kind of, I, I mean, well, you know. the, the, like Corliss's whole problem in the NBA, uh, even in his day was he couldn't guard like that superstar wing. He could play defense. It's not that he lacked effort. He just wasn't quick footed enough on the perimeter. Like uh, it, the, the thing that really chased him out of the, out of the Pistons rotation was, you know, he, he was forced to be in guard, to guard Tracy McGrady, you know, for, and it was just not a fair fight. And Draymond's whole thing is defense. I think Draymond, what holds him back is his lack of offensive scoring ability. 
Like he, he's, he's a very good defender. He's a very good passer, good ball handler. Not a guy that puts the ball into the basket uh, at any kind of uh, high rate that Corliss was really the opposite, even though he, which is funny because they, they had the same body type, but Corliss was the opposite of that. He wasn't the best, wasn't the best defender, uh, was not the greatest passer, even though he, he was a willing passer, but he put the ball into the passing at an extremely high rate. It was, he was very, very good at it. Um, but I think your I think what makes your point really today is that for a player of Corliss's build to succeed today, he almost has to be like a Draymond Green. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I was more so talking about was like just the body type is yeah. similar. And and there really isn't a whole lot of guys with that body type in the league today. Um, but at least that I can think of. Uh, maybe like a uh Montres uh Harrell or something like that. I I I but, but to your to your point though, Draymond Green also fell. He fell a lot further from the draft than uh, Corliss did in his. Yeah, because, right. Because of the exact same concerns about you know his build and where does he fit on an NBA floor? Like that, right. it, it's almost. I I think like he's today's Corliss Williamson, even though they have polar opposite type games. So I think that's a very good comparison by you. Okay. Well, speaking of drafts and speaking of Corliss Williamson, on next week's episode, we're going to be doing the 1995 NBA draft. Uh, it, we're talking, you know, Corliss Williamson, uh, McDice, another guy we brought up today, Jerry Stackhouse, another guy we brought up today, Red, Rashid Wallace, another guy we brought up today. But the big one, obviously, is Mr. Kevin Garnett, who, I mean, I think we all know who's going number one next week. Uh, but, but there's a lot of, there, you know, there's, uh, speaking of John Barry, Brent Barry's in this draft, uh, yeah. Mike, Michael Finley, Theo oh, Ratliff. Brent Barry. This is, uh, this is actually kind of a, almost kind of a really deep draft. Uh, Greg Ostertag was a guy who played center for two Western conference championship teams. Uh, Tyus Edney, um, I don't know, maybe not the greatest pro, but maybe has one of the greatest college basketball plays of all time. Uh, and we, we will be joined by a once again by a special guest uh, from the the Pistons Pulse, uh, Mr. Bryce Simon will be uh, our our guest uh, drafter, our our number our third guest picker. Uh, a wonderfully smart guy. Yes. Uh, I had a chance to watch a game with him in Vegas at the Summer League a year ago. Uh, he has been prepping this uh, for months. And I'm not joking. He has he has notes. He has already told me since I asked him to do this episode with us. Uh, uh, he is a very meticulous uh, in his preparation. Uh, he also tells me he has some Ed O'Bannon uh, stories to share with us. Now, I may be wrong, but he could be the tallest player or excuse me, tallest person we've ever had on this on this show. Grant comes in at uh, six yeah, eight. I, I, Bryce is like six yeah, ten. Yeah, is he taller it? than Grant Hill? I think he might be. Yeah, as as, as someone that has met him, yeah. And, and for for um for future reference, well, for for reference, uh, the funny thing about uh, Vegas Summer League is that it probably has the the highest the the tallest average height for per spectator of anywhere up any event in the world because most of the most of the uh people attending uh, the Vegas Summer League are either players or their relatives of players or their coaches who are or scouts who are themselves former players and the average height I want to say I'm six one 
and I have never felt short in my entire life until I went to Vegas for uh, summer league. When the and I swear the average height was probably six six for for an entire arena of fans. It was nuts, and I. I go to meet Bryce for the first time. I, I had no idea he was um, – I knew he was a former uh, college basketball player, attended American University. Did not realize he was 6'10 or 6'9 or whatever the heck he is. Because even in that crowd, he still stood out. It, it was kind of jarring. Well, actually, uh, according according to sports reference, Bryce is 6'6". He, I, I, I swear he looked like he was 6'8". So, no, Grant, Grant Hill is still technically the tallest, but – I don't know. I Bryce, if you're out there, and I'm sure you're listening to this because you're preparing for next week's episode, I really did think you were like, like six eight. Uh, you you were, you you can tell us whether or not um, basketball reference has done you wrong. Yes, I look forward to doing that, and maybe we'll even just go over this basketball reference page with him because we didn't get to do that with uh, with good old Grant Hill. Uh, but yeah, uh, so that's going to be a fun episode. I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, I, I also, you know, we got a we got news on another big guest coming in. Not going to tell you who it is yet, but it is gigantic. And uh, we we have a, a date coming. Um, we'll let you guys know as soon as, as we know what that date is going to be. But I just want to, to put the little little uh, uh, whatchamacallit out there that this is like a, this is huge. This is Grant Hill, Grant Hill level huge, like maybe even bigger. Uh I would probably have to say this is bigger. This is the biggest guest we'll ever have. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. It's Michael Jordan. Uh, we really got Michael. <laughs> oh, to stop. Uh, not, yeah, Michael Jordan's going to be here, guys. No, stop. Uh, no, we got Sean Elliott to come in and talk. Okay, about... no, I'm quitting. <laughs> All right. No, you will be not... interviewing him by yourself. <laughs> no, it's not Sean Elliott. new show. It's a big one. You guys are going to love it. I can't wait till uh, till this person comes on the show. And uh, we'll look forward to next week with uh, Bryce Simon for the 1995 NBA draft. We'll see you guys then.